This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the Good morning. It's November 6th, the day after Election Day, and we're here to bring you the crisis that's still happening in Richmond even after elections. So we have some organizers here that have been doing the work and that can get us up to date on what's happening. Three very special guests, and I'm going to let them all introduce themselves. Uh, hey, this is Omari El-Qaddafi. Uh, I'm a housing organizer with Legal Aid Justice Center, and I sit on the housing committee for a social justice organization called Community Unity in Action. You'll recognize Omari from our previous transit episode, which was one of our favorites, as well as just his voice in the community. Thanks so much for being here, Omari. Thanks for having me. My name is Palmer Heenan. I'm an attorney with the Central Virginia Legal Aid Society, and I work exclusively in housing as part of the Equal Justice Works Housing Justice Program. And last, but definitely not least, Alan Charles Chipman, faith food organizer, transformation strategist for Initiatives of Change. Welcome back, Alan Charles. Friends to the show here today to really just dive in and tell us what in the world has been going on with Richmond housing. So Omari, I'm going to look straight at you because you've been on the ground and a voice for many folks, whether that's just been following on Facebook, following on the news. Tell us a little bit about where you have seen Richmond housing crisis start in the last couple years. So in the fall of 2017, uh, the coalition that I'm a part of, Community Unity in Action, uh, made a decision based on information that was coming out of the community. We made a decision to call for new leadership at the uh, Housing Authority, at Richmond Redevelopment Housing Authority. We had been noting years of mismanagement, uh, misallocation of funding, and a general uh, lack of concern for the quality of life of the residents that lived in public housing. You know, some of this mismanagement showed up as HUD fines uh, and other sanctions that came along and, you know, a lot of awareness that was in mainstream media about um, shortcomings in the housing authority. So um, a couple months later, you know, some that mismanagement uh, showed up as the heat crisis that everyone uh, remembers so vividly uh, at the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018. And um, at that point, the entire city ended up, you know, banding together and acknowledging that mismanagement when people didn't have heat uh, throughout uh, RHA's units. It was uh, a lot of emphasis was put on Creighton Court uh, because there are plans to redevelop over there. And there was a lot of uh, homes without heat over there. But the issue actually was uh, widespread throughout all of uh, RHA's developments. So sometime around January 2018, I think towards the end, uh, the CEO of the Housing Authority at that time, T.K. Somanoff, uh, after intense pressure was coming from uh, uh, the political realm and also the community, uh, he did decide to resign at that time. And so the new leadership, we wanted new leadership in the Housing Authority that would actually have a a concern and heart for the people and would have uh, an interest in improving their quality of life uh, and cons to be consistent 
with you know the, their mandate under HUD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now what we see is that there's a new CEO that has been brought in there. It took them you know over a little over a year to bring another CEO in, and you know as soon as he got there, uh, Community Union Action had met with him and expressed our concerns and you know our appreciation for him to come and bring uh, change to the culture at the housing authority. And we were encouraged initially through our conversations. However, since his arrival, it does seem that not much has changed and there's actually seems to be a doubling down of the exclusion of the community from having say-so in uh, the operations of the Housing Authority. Uh, this showed up as um, uh, a there was a, an annual plan that was put out by the Housing Authority and the public input period for that was not consistent with uh, federal law or state law. Um, and now is that the transparency, accountability conversations that we've seen the last few weeks that you're talking about, or is this a different plan? Um, no, it's, it's the same plan. This mm-hmm. was this plan came out, um, what was it, around just sometime late summer of, mm-hmm. uh, of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that plan, you know, said a lot of changes would be coming. Uh, it basically said that the whole, uh, all 4,000 units in the housing authority would be eventually be converted to mixed income communities and there would be a, a proliferation of uh, housing choice vouchers being put given to families to, I guess, find like housing somewhere else theoretically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we are seeing now is um, I was, the whole month of October, residents in Creighton Court and Gilpin Court were saying, hey, I, I'm seeing this uh, high level of evictions, you know, a lot of uh, vacant units around um, in the community. And so uh, we had reached out to the CEO and extended uh, some, some recommendations that he could have. And, and this was like a follow-up of conversations they've been having since July of 2019. So. Throughout the whole summer, you know, we were continuously uh, communicating with him. You know, uh, we have this list of recommendations for you that will help out with the their crazy high eviction rates in the housing authority. And we were basically getting stonewalled for the whole summer. And July is when you all had that big turnout at their housing authority meeting, correct? Right, right. Uh, I think it was July 26 was mm-hmm. when there was, uh, the media said it was about 100 people uh, that showed up. It was the biggest showing ever at a housing authority board of commissioners meeting. And mm-hmm. people were expressing their concerns for some of the plans that were being put out and the exclusion of the community. Mm-hmm. from those plans. And it was then those voices and that public input that was not put into the plan correct later and or and not reviewed in a timely period and that's where we heard councilmen from the 5th district here in Richmond even speaking about the lack of transparency that was happening in the public input process. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the councilman from the 5th district, he's actually been pretty vocal over the past couple years Mm. about the lack of accountability and oversight happening at the Housing Authority. So with this election that just happened yesterday, and this is pre-recorded, so we're not sure the outcome of that election, but that could also be a voice that we are missing now 
with this council person being gone, depending on who's taking their place. Also, I just want to point out for people's memories that it was after the next meeting, after the July one, when you had the record turnout, where I remember they had just hired the czar. Right, right. And and then would not allow people in. Right. Yeah. And so I was at that meeting and people were texting me from outside saying, hey, they're not letting us in. And so I, I noticed that there was a police officer in the room where there nor, there's never been a police officer at the meetings before. But uh, he was guarding one entrance. And then uh, Mr. Swan, the new uh, so-called crime czar, he was guarding another door. And I had asked him, you know, was he denying people in? And he said, yeah, there's a capacity issue. Uh, and I said, well, what's the capacity of the room? And he said, 30. And I looked around the room, and there was like 17 RHA staff in the room, and there were like four developers in the room, and a Navy Hill presenter. And um, so essentially, they were. He was saying that there was only room for nine residents in the room. Mm. And to this day, we haven't seen any documentation that uh, indicates that there's a 30-person capacity in this room. We've requested that information from the housing authority, and none's been provided. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this has been something that's been the focus of Community Unity in Action since about 2017, Mm -hmm. when you all were informed by the community. And I think that's a really important part to highlight, is that your work has been directly informed by people that live there saying, hey, this is what's going on. Right, right. And that's a good point to make because there are people that will tell this narrative that, you know, uh, we are just jumping out there or Mari's just jumping out there and saying this and that. He's not speaking, you know, for the people that are affected. But, you know, at the point where where me or Community Union in Action at that time would have been involved, that that's when the community has you know, exhausted all of their other avenues and when they're not being listened to and no one's helping and then they come to us and then we know, we make a decision at that point that something has to be done. Right, right. So I want to turn to your partner now that you're working on. You've always been very connected to the community, but you do have a role now with legal aid as a housing organizer, right. correct? Um, yeah, so uh, this past July, I started um, you know, working with uh, Legal Aid Justice Center as a part of the program that uh, Palmer just uh, mentioned, Equal Justice Works Housing Justice Program. So uh, yes, I'm a housing organizer now with uh, Legal Aid Justice Center, and we're working with Virginia Poverty Law Center and also the fine lawyers like Mr. Heenan here at Central Virginia Legal Aid Society. They're mm-hmm. all doing great work. It's a really exciting time for housing justice in Richmond. We really need it, and we're making a lot of impact right. in the city. I think it's important to to make sure the listeners realize that your work since 2017 is what is pushing the information out that, hey, we need money to go into legal justice services as well as organizers that now – we can pay for your work, right, that you've been doing voluntarily just as a servant of the community. And I say that importantly to people because... It's an equity issue. It's an equity issue. Yeah. Right, right. So Palmer Heenan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So you are newer to Richmond, but you were brought up as a fierce litigator, as I've heard the great minds telling me. So tell us a little bit of just your reactions coming to Richmond and seeing this all as a reality. I think it's important to note that, that as you were saying, and as Omari was talking about, our work as lawyers wouldn't be possible, and I wouldn't be here 
without the, the, the community and the organizing that happened to let people know that there was a crisis in Richmond, both in uh, the public housing through the Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority, but also in private housing. Richmond has the second highest eviction rate of any large city in the country at 11%, which means one in 10 tenants in the city of Richmond will be evicted in a given year. And that rate is nearly two and a half times as high if you live in public housing. In 2018, 25% of public housing tenants received judgments of eviction. In other words, they were effectively evicted by the courts, um, even if they weren't formally put out of their houses by the sheriff. One-fourth, a quarter of the residents living in public housing that's Last correct. Year. Uh, by uh, based on the data that that we've collected and mm-hmm. um, uh, compiled through the uh, eviction lab, which was started by Matthew Desmond, who wrote "Evicted: Poverty mm-hmm. and Profit in America," um, eliminating and controlling for duplicate filings. A quarter of all public housing uh, tenants were uh, received judgments of eviction last year, and I think what's so fascinating about that is that that is actually a twenty five percent increase from two thousand seventeen. So mm-hmm. not only is there an eviction crisis, but it's actually from 2017, 2018, it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. So that kind of follows a narrative that we're hearing on the street of this is what's happening. We're going to demo it all down, as Omar told us in 2017, or this has been the plan for, for quite a while. And many of us have been asking, you know, is this just part of the greater narrative to kick people out? And just looking at the numbers right now, that's those types of numbers really worry us. Can you talk a little bit about what happens with a judgment? Because some folks have really said, well, but were they put out, right? When we're having these granular conversations about evictions, right? What is, what's the harm of a judgment, even if they're not put out of their home? It's a great question. Um, and there's, there's several. Um, first of all, and I think most importantly, if you have a judgment of possession, that's sort of the, f- the formal name for it, okay. um, o- o- on your record, uh, at-, at that point, that stays with you for years and years and years. And landlords use sort of consumer reporting agencies that compile this information, um, sometimes accurately, very often inaccurately. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they are able to see if you've had an eviction levied against you by a court. And if they see that, they're extremely unlikely to rent to you. And even if they are willing to rent to you, uh, you know, very often it comes at a premium. There was a, an article, uh, or excuse me, a, a report in CBS 6 last week about predatory landlords essentially who, who, who prey upon people who have, say, eviction records and therefore aren't able to get into public housing for sure and very often into private housing. As a second sort of consequence, um, very often evictions have consequences for your ability to obtain public housing benefits. Right. Um, and, and thirdly, I would say that when you have a judgment of possession on your record, the landlord is able to essentially hold that over your head for six months. So even if you get current, it's possible for them to evict you, um, especially if you have a previous judgment on your record, mm-hmm. um, because you're only allowed under the law to execute what's called a redemption, which is essentially where you save yourself from eviction once every 12 months. So if you get another judgment, that's it. You're done. And I I do have to highlight what he just said, and I'm not sure if most people are aware of that, is that, and we saw, we've seen this since the laws changed in July to say that, uh, you know, you can only, um, you know, enforce that judgment for six months, but landlords will wait for four or five months. And if they don't like you, they will say, hey, I got this judgment from you from four five months ago and now you're getting put out 
And that's regardless of if you've still been paying your money or whatever since the judgment, they still are entitled in the state of Virginia to put you out. And in fact, they'll still try to do it at 12 months. Um, we've had several cases that even though the law changed in July 1st, it used to be that they could hold a judgment over you for 12 months. And July 1st, that became six months. But there are landlords that are still trying to hold these judgments over from last year, even though the laws changed. In fact, uh, one of my colleagues uh, was in court yesterday morning dealing in Chesterfield, uh, dealing with that exact case. And we've had many of those come up where it'll be a judgment from October 2018. They paid the money off. And then they maybe fell behind one month, and the landlord, just like that, wants to put them out. Wow. So here in the former capital of the Confederacy, we've got all types of laws and policies that are still creating barriers to people get basic human rights. So let's bring us up current to why everybody's paying attention now. On October 21st, Omari, you started the the outcry, right? You just put on social media yeah. of the numbers. So yeah. give us a rundown. What happened? Well, like I said, uh, we had been getting reports from Creighton Court specifically uh, throughout the month of October that people were seeing uh, high rates of eviction. Um, I think back as far as uh, like October 2nd and October 9th, I had reached out to the housing authority and I said, hey, you know, um, we're getting these reports from the community about surges and eviction. Um, where, where are we um, in any progress on the recommendations that my colleagues and I have been discussing with you since July? And they basically told us that they hadn't done anything at that point. Um, they said that uh, some of the recommendations are already on the books, as they said, and um, they said that they need to determine where the breakdown is occurring in, in implementing those recommendations. And, uh, you know, I, I said to them, well, uh, we really need to have a follow-up meeting right now, you know, to see uh, where we can go with this. And uh, I asked about... Uh, which were the exact policies that had been uh, that were already on the books, and I didn't get a response to that. And so uh, I was told um, that the follow-up meeting could happen in a week or two, and I did express to them at that time that, you know, if, if we do have to wait a week or two, there is a possibility that many more families could be homeless by then. And then so that was, brings us up to two weeks, less than two weeks later, where there's 52 eviction cases going uh, from Creighton Court into uh, into uh, General District Court for eviction. So um, and, and so when we were getting these reports from the community, uh, actually a community member had sent a FOIA request into RHA, and they got back uh, the vacancy report. And the vacancy report from uh, the Housing Authority showed that Creighton Court had 91 vacancies and had the lowest occupancy rate of all of the big six complexes in Richmond. Uh, it showed that they had not signed a new lease in Creighton since before June. And so what that looks like is that well, one, what one could infer from that mm -hmm. is that RHA is intentionally allowing units to stay vacant you know, ahead of any type of approval from HUD or anything like that. That's, that's what it looks like. And, 
So you said yeah. from any type of approval from HUD. Right. So break that down for folks so, that maybe not have caught uh, up. Before demolition occurs or anything like that, before they can uh, dispose of any, any any housing authority in the country, before they can dispose of a, a property, they have to get approval from HUD. So they, they request uh, for the demolition and HUD will approve. And at that point, that's when uh, a housing authority can start to, um, you know, leave units vacant and start to, you know, implement those strategies to get the occupancy down. So just catching up, we've already heard the the plan from the housing commissioners is to demolish public housing and go to vouchers. Mm -hmm. And now in October, we're seeing from at at least one particular housing unit that they are putting people out at a high rate. And in that same housing complex, they're also not filling up the the leases and the units as well. So it does. It looks like they're emptying this out prematurely. Mm -hmm. And we all know that um, according to grants and funding, something that's boarded up or it looks blighted Mm -hmm. is right for the picking for redevelopment. Yeah, and it also presents a, you know, we have the, the, the broken window theory. There we it go. Pre- so it, it impacts the current residents that are living there. So their neighborhood is becoming less safe. There's upwards of 3,400 people on the waiting list, uh, 3,400 people on the waiting list to get into public housing. So if units are being left vacant, at a time when people are, you know, RPS students are sleeping in cars with their parents and, and things of that nature, sleeping on couches and, and things like that. Um, I just think it's really doing, you know, the whole city an injustice. It's not uh, showing a care and concern for the people of the city. So after the public got involved, I saw a lot of people donating for the 52 evictions, and some of these numbers were pretty low. Give us some of the the numbers for people going to court. Initially, we had identified nine residents who got judgments against them on that day for amounts that were under $100. Uh, There were many that were, the judgments were for $50 or or around that amount. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... So there was a win, I'm putting that in air quotes for you all, that first week to answer some of the things that you all have been asking for from RHA, right, with the diversion program? That's correct. And just to sort of tag on to what Omari was saying, I think it's worth noting that in the Creighton Court judgments, um, the median judgment was for $122.50. Um, so the, me- the average? The the median rent judgment okay. was $122.50. So of all the people that got judgment, that's that's the number, essentially, 50% below, 50% above. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, just to editorialize it a little bit, so many folks on my social media are like, oh, my goodness, where can I write the check? Is that it? I just want to write the check. And I appreciate that sense of help and wanting to but i think we need to also process that there are many people out there that do not have 122 dollars to save their home right now that sense of poverty that people do not have access to is why we do need organizers legal why we need folks really understanding how to at least start the process of understanding what's actually happening in richmond I think that's exactly right. And I think it's important to note that on October 22nd, the day of the Creighton Court eviction lawsuits, although that's a somewhat high number, it's not exactly atypical. In the four-week period from mid-October to mid-November, RHA will have filed 142 eviction lawsuits, which would put them on an annual pace, uh, if they did that every four weeks, to file eviction lawsuits against more than 60% of the tenants in the Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority. 
uh, which is which is staggering when you think about it, but not atypical. I mean, it was, you know, in the the, the 30s in 2017, it was 45% in 2018. So the idea that they would file eviction lawsuits against 60% of, of, of tenants is is not actually unthinkable. And it looks like it's the pattern now. The last couple of years, this is how this growth rate is happening. So 60% of public housing residents basically could expect to be evicted if they're continuing this rate that they're doing if, right now. If that they continue at the pace that they have from mid-October to mid-November, that's that was what you would project out. So with the diversion program, let's let's talk about how a lot of folks right now are call are calling this a win, even though our rate is increasing astronomically that you said so as you noted uh, seemingly as a consequence although it may have been pre-planned we don't know but seemingly um, you know um, um, after the Creighton court eviction lawsuits were filed and there was a public outcry um, RHA agreed to participate in Richmond's voluntary eviction diversion program which finally we had been asking them to do since the er yeah early July July 3rd I think so that is a win um, because it will uh, provide potentially at least um, assistance to some of these folks. The eviction diversion program is a program that was passed um, into law in Richmond uh, solely. There will be a mandatory eviction uh, diversion program rolled out across the state in the coming years, but uh, Richmond is sort of a pilot project for the program, and it is a, a partnership uh, between a number of different organizations. It's being administered through home, housing opportunities made equal, um, and essentially, uh, if you can pay a percentage of your rent when you come to court on the f what's called the first return date, essentially the first date that your case comes back to court um, after it's filed against you, then you can enter into this program or they will provide some assistance in, in paying your rent, you know, as long as you're able to kind of stay current going forward and, and sort of pay off at least a portion of the back balance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you have to be able to pay in yeah, order. and that's one of the shortcomings of the program, although, you know, it's a, it's the program will help uh, many people, I, I hope, you know, um, and I expect it to, but you do have to, there's an eligibility there, so you, you do have to demonstrate your ability to uh, pay the rent uh, going forward. Is there anything that would not make you eligible right off that you can share with our listeners? Well, home administers the program, gotcha. so um, but I would imagine that having no income would uh, make you ineligible. And they may be making uh, some concessions right now, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, for uh, public housing residents. But okay. uh, typically, I would expect I would expect that if you don't have income, that you would be ineligible for the program. Gotcha. So it sounds like this Richmond Diversion Program was rolled out, but our RHA was not participating they, until they just did, now. They did not agree to participate until uh, late last week. That's really confusing to me, again, that I have been seeing in the news that this diversion program is here in Richmond. We're going to roll this out. But nobody was really talking about that our RHA was not involved in this. And that's a huge problem for us to declare this a win. And they just did this because they made some bad press here in October is what if it sounds did, like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I'm not. I'm editorializing, like, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I. <laughs> <laughs> so even last week, more came out. Uh, Palmer, you were in court with Judge Caldwell. Can you talk a little bit about your experience there? There were uh, 31 uh, unlawful detainer eviction lawsuits filed by RHA for F residents of Fairfield Court. Mm -hmm. And uh, in court, Judge Cardwell uh, uh, noted that there were a number of defects with the lawsuits that have been brought by RRHA. Mm -hmm. 
some of them sort of technical legal defects, um, but I think there were a couple important ones to note. One was the lawsuit that is filed against you if you're being accused of not paying rent has to contain the time period that you're accused of not paying rent for so that you can know whether or not you didn't pay rent. And that wasn't being provided. So you can imagine getting a lawsuit where you're not actually being told when you didn't pay rent. You have no idea and no ability to really defend yourself Mm -hmm. from that. And I I think another sort of troubling thing is um, every lawsuit in Virginia in, in, in general district court has to be accompanied by a service member's Civil Relief Act affidavit, which is essentially an affidavit where you say the defendant is not in the military. Um, because members of the military are entitled to protection um, from from certain types of lawsuits, and the judge noted that those had not been properly filed. They were they were copies without live signatures, um, which is troubling um, because it, it it means it's possible perhaps no one was actually looking into whether there were members of the military uh, being evicted. Um, it's it's hard to know exactly what it means that they were copies, whether they were sort of just being blanket put into the file or whether it was just an innocent mistake uh, of copying. Um, but the judge, like I said, noted uh, a number of defects and uh, decided to dismiss uh, all 31 cases uh, summarily. And she made it very clear that that doesn't mean that folks don't have to pay rent um, or that uh, the Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority would be prohibited from necessarily refiling the cases, but they had to follow the law. They had to follow the rules of the court in, in order to, to evict someone, which I think we can all agree is, is a good thing for people to do, to have to follow the rules and to follow the law. And are you noticing that that's common, or was that particular to just that judge? I've never seen anything like that in in court before. Um, I I don't know if I would even say, however, that it's a stance by the judges other than a a stance in favor of the rule of law. Um, You know, if any party files something in court, they, they have to follow the rules and they have to follow the law. And as the judge noted, RHA simply was not doing that. And... I would think that it would be the position of any court um, that if people don't follow the law and they don't follow the rules when they file something in court, that that should be dismissed and they should be made to follow those rules um, and and the law if they're going to take a a step as severe as evicting someone. So what's next? Uh, Well, what's next for me and, you know, my work as an organizer is um, basically to continue what we've been doing. to ensure that the community knows the the facts and knows what's going on, uh, policies that are being implemented or proposed that are affecting their housing uh, stability. Uh, also, we're you know just trying to build capacity among residents and to make sure that they know that they're being supported because uh, particularly in public housing, there is a lot of intimidation. Um, like Palmer was talking about, uh, as far as, you know, judgments being held over your head, you know, and that's one thing that's uh, particularly out of the housing authority is, like, people will have multiple judgments against them uh, and still, you know, be paying their rent and everything, but if there are these multiple judgments, um, you know, hanging over their head, then they're less likely to, you know, speak out because they they do feel intimidated and they feel that at any time someone may come along and you know allege that they maybe they they're smoking a cigarette inside of their uh, unit you know or that they they have uh, the wrong people inside of their apartment visiting them or something like that you know or even just to just to use the judgment just to evict them uh, summarily you know right because right now they need the property to redevelop it sounds like yeah right. yeah well 
that's that seems to be what's in the plan. It it seems to be that way. As far as as uh, sort of my uh, legal practice, I think continuing to to advocate for and and, and do individual representation. That's sort of what we specialize um, at at Central Virginia Legal Aid Society uh, to show the, the the problems in the system. Um, you know, a, a big reason, one of the big reasons I think that this crisis has gotten to where it is, is that there there hasn't been uh, a, a lot of uh, of resources legally for folks, and so either people don't show up to court, um, and therefore the issues you know never get raised, or they don't have a lawyer, in which case the issues still don't get raised. And I, I think you're seeing, at least in part, um, attention drawn to the the legal problems with cases. And one particular area of concern for me uh, that I'm looking at going forward is uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, Virginia law uh, doesn't contain a remedy, really, uh, if you live in a condemned property. Um, so if your property is condemned, you're just, you're just homeless, essentially, at that point. The landlord has no obligation other than to return the balance of whatever rent you paid for that month to assist you in finding a new place um, or, or, or anything like that. And mm-hmm. so I find that particularly troubling. I think a lot of eviction cases that I've seen thus far um, there's a, a really high degree of correlation between eviction and bad conditions because mm-hmm. very often people think, oh, well, you know, I have mold everywhere in my unit. I have dozens of cases uh, with, with mold or my house is about to be condemned. The power doesn't work, so I'm just going to stop paying rent. Yeah. And in Virginia, they, they can't do that. Right. Um, and that creates a huge problem because very often landlords say, well, I'm not going to fix it until you start paying rent. Right. And you just gave an example before we started recording of um, just down the street, a building was condemned and every one of those residents are now homeless. And there's absolutely zero obligation. And, and, and it's important for the city to use their police power to condemn unsafe buildings. That's an extremely important thing to do. Right. But by the same token, there has to be some remedy, you know, where the landlord is responsible, especially if the landlord is responsible for the condemna- condemnation of the building, if they haven't maintained the building, right. if they you know knew or should have known that the building was unsafe and yet let it slide anyway, the city inspector comes and says, my God, people could die in this building. Yep. There's mold everywhere or the wiring's bad. There could be a fire. So of course the city says no one can live here anymore. Mm-hmm. But then what do the residents do? Right. And as a former social worker, I was saying offline before we started is that and many times we would be in a dilemma of do we report this unit or do we have another place to allow our client consumer the person that we're working with to have a place to live yeah i I faced that same balancing act you know as part of organizing the advocacy work you know how how far do you want to push you know against a, a landlord you know if there's the possibility there's the real possibility that something like what Palmer just said happened around the corner mm-hmm. uh, could happen there also. Right. They'll just condemn the building and then it's not even about an eviction process. Yeah. Right. Um, well, we want to thank you both for coming. We're going to continue this conversation with the longtime Richmonders, but we want to really thank you, Palmer Hennon, for being here. And before you leave, we're going to jump into What's Your Privilege? What's Your Privilege is a segment of the show where we invite our guests to identify the privilege that they carry amongst in the world and how they use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. So, Palmer, I would love to invite you just for a minute or two to tell the listeners what's your privilege and how are you using it uh, to make progress here in our Commonwealth? 
Well, I, I pretty much grew up as privileged as you could. I'm a white male, a white cisgender male, um, and I grew up comfortably sort of middle class in North Carolina. Um, so I, you know, I guess maybe if I had a, a dad who was a property developer who could give me a small loan, I might have had a little bit more privilege. But uh, anything more than that, I, I can't really imagine. And I, I mean, I see myself here trying to use that to, to help people that, that have been disadvantaged. Um, I had the privilege of having a good education that, that a lot of people don't have access to, of being able to go to law school and have a support structure that a lot of people don't have access to. Um, and so I, my hope is to use that um, to, to actually help people and, and raise them up mm -hmm. um, in, in the same way that, that I was raised up by the support system I had because essentially I grew up white, cisgender, male. Mm -hmm. And you were telling us your story before we started on air and you said you saw this opportunity what was happening specifically in housing and said you wanted to come help with your litigation skills. That's correct. I, I was uh, in the private sector uh, before this. I started my legal career as a public defender, but I was in the private sector before this and uh, I, I had read Evicted and I saw that there was a crisis in Richmond and this opportunity arose and I, I decided that this was something that, that I had to do um, mm -hmm. because I think people who grew up like I did really can't appreciate, and I can't appreciate even representing folks in the position, how incredibly huge an eviction really is. I mean, even as a public defender, you know, when somebody gets a criminal conviction, that's obviously serious. It can go result in jail time, prison time. Um, I have clients who are still in prison to this day, um, even though I represented them years and years ago. But for a lot of people, an eviction is pretty much, other than a criminal conviction, the worst thing that can happen to them. It disrupts their family, it disrupts the community within which they reside, the neighborhood, but also the larger community. Mm -hmm. And so I, I see this as being a critical issue, and I'm glad that attention is being brought to it you know, in the public, but also in terms of the resources that are available, because it makes a difference if you have an issue with housing that you can call legal aid and have an attorney that will stand with you in court. And even maybe if you, you can't win the case, um, you can still make them fight more mm -hmm. to actually evict people as opposed to the you know, stamp, stamp, stamp that Matthew Desmond describes in, in Evicted of just sort of this, this processing line, this assembly line of evictions where nobody's really thinking about the, the families that, that stand behind those evictions. Mm. And that's what I heard that you do. If they're going to, even if you're set to lose that case and they're going to evict the family anyway, you go in and you make sure if they have to fight before they start stamping. I mean, at Legal Aid, you know, we have to be selective. We can't take everybody. We don't have those levels of resources yet. But right. yes, my yeah. goal is to fight for every, every person that I can and every client that I can because there has to be an awareness that these are real people and real families that are behind these these pieces of paper um, where they're being filed and all of a sudden the family's homeless. Before I let you go, Palmer, I would also, would you mind speaking to Richmonders that are often looking at me and telling me that folks like myself, Omari, Alan, Charles, that are speaking out against this, that we're, some of the things that we want are just impossible or impractical and that if we really want to go forward, this isn't the way to do this. Like you've been in the trenches, you've seen this now. People are, are tuned in just a little bit now, but I'm still hearing folks like when we talk about elections and, and big ideas that are impacting 
how it comes down to where people can live and who's getting evicted, what would you tell Richmonders for just to kind of let them know, like, what are the voices that we should be listening to here in Richmond? Well, I think a lot of those voices are in this room and are the ones talking about this issue. Um, but, but I would say that, you know, I think it's easy to say, oh, it would be hard to do X, Y, or Z. Um, but, but it's actually not that hard. And right. it doesn't actually take that many resources to fix this problem. Um, there, there's an affordable housing crisis in Richmond, right? There are some problems with some of the laws um, that, that, that need to be changed. But it, within a, a year or two, a lot of these problems could be solved. And you've seen them in other communities mm-hmm. get solved. Uh, New York has a, a pilot, pro- New York City has a pilot program, a right to counsel program in housing cases mm-hmm. to make sure that, that people have, are entitled entitled, excuse me, not that they have, but they're entitled to a lawyer in, in, in some jurisdictions in New York City if they're going to be evicted. And I, I think that would be a really easy solution. Um, we've done that with public defenders, and it's made a huge difference in the criminal justice system. I saw that when I was in the trenches as a public defender. Mm-hmm. Um, y- y- you know, But other simpler solutions as well, continuing to expand legal aid resources so that we can take more of the clients that walk mm-hmm. through the door. Mm-hmm. Because obviously we know there are thousands of, of RHA tenants alone Right. much less the private housing tenants that need that help. Right. And honestly, we know that. But here in Richmond, a lot of people don't. But it takes voices to inform people that this is actually happening before those resources get allocated, before people even start talking about it. So something I'm really trying to push people here is how long are you going to have voices like Omari telling you the problem before we all come together and say, maybe we just create some real solutions with the same people that have been telling us it's been a problem for years. So. It's easy to fall into gradualism, right? right? I mean, you know, Dr. King spoke about that. Right. Um, and I, I think that would be a tragedy with this problem because Omari mentioned this earlier, you know, as he was speaking to folks in early October and they said, oh, well, let us get back to you. People are going to get evicted in that time. You're right. going to have families that become homeless in that time. And I think it's easy just to look at that and say, well, they didn't pay their rent. Right. And, and, and maybe in some cases that's true, mm-hmm. but that doesn't do any less damage to that family, any less damage to that neighborhood, and any less damage to that community. And so right. unless we realize that this is a systemic problem it's a poverty problem and we address it on that level Mm -hmm. which we could it wouldn't be that hard to do Mm -hmm. but if we start addressing it on that level that's when you're going to start to see real systemic solutions systemic problem solving thank you so much for being here it was my pleasure thank you for having me yeah i could just piggyback off of what palmer just said a little bit Uh, There is sometimes a tendency in the community, uh, sometimes from uh, people that are viewed as leaders in the community, to, uh, you know, blame residents themselves for their inability to pay their rent and essentially blaming them for being evicted and becoming homeless and and whatnot. And, And people really, I think it comes from a lack of understanding that, like Palmer said, it is a systemic thing that's going on. Uh, you know, it's been six years since the city put out the Anti-Poverty Commission report. And when we're thinking about housing instability and evictions, there is a reason that someone is living paycheck to paycheck, or there is a reason that someone can't afford to pay $100 to save their family from becoming homeless, you know. Um, we do have a, a, inequitable transportation. We have uh, inequities in the education system, you know, literacy rates. You know, all of these things are going on. And, uh, you know, with job access being so poor, 
You know, we don't have access to a lot of the the jobs that people really want to get to. And even if we have, you know, physical access, transportation access, um, you know, what I, I what I like to think about is a, a single mother with maybe two or three children, you know, and she's out chasing this American dream that she's been told to get up off of her butt and stop, you know, living in public housing. So she wants to work 40 hours a week you know, to provide for her children, to save up money to get out of uh, public housing or whatever to improve her her situation, you know, who's watching her children at that time? You know, so she can only work during the hours that they are in school, essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, so otherwise then the, you know, the youngins are running around the street and then you have these high crime rates with uh, young adults and with teenagers in the city and then people are just blaming the parents, you know, they'll say, oh, well, where were the parents? You know, what were they doing while the kids were, oh, they were, they were out chasing that American dream for 40 hours a week, you know? And Mm -hmm. so it, it is a systemic thing that's going on that is causing these high rates of evictions along with the, the inadequacies in or <laughs> I mean from my from my perspective it's inadequacies but you know some people think that the code of Virginia and the statutes therein are created and working adequately in the way that they were intended to work but there's a lot of barriers working together with different systems that are resulting into these high rates of eviction and it's not always just about someone's inability or someone's unwillingness to pay their rent. Right. And that's what systemic is, right? It, it's not just the blame of the individual. We didn't get number two in the nation because we've got some irresponsible individuals. Right. We became number two in the nation because our policies are messed up and they're targeting poor people and maybe they are working as intended but i'm hearing a lot of state legislators that are saying hey the virginia landlord tenant laws are not up to par and that's why they just tried to do something this past general assembly from take it the 12 months to the six months that we heard you all talk about but we still need more i want to invite alan charles chipman he's been so quiet this entire time and i just what are your thoughts from this entire conversation i've been quiet because i've been uh, quite furious actually i mean there's a there's a great uh, quote by Coretta Scott King that talks about, I must remind you that starving a child is violence, neglecting school children is violence, punishing a mother and her family is violence, discrimination against a working man is violence, ghetto housing is violence, uh, contempt for the poor is violence. Um, and when we think about uh, urban renewal, renewal and what James Baldwin referred to it as Negro removal. And um, when you see that process that came through Richmond, um, and when, you, you know, the, the picture of Navy Hill School closing in 1965, and we were just, uh, Chelsea and I were just in a presentation where, where we were talking about uh, the new Navy Hill development, and some person said, well, the old Coliseum is why my childhood home isn't there. Mm-hmm. And my great-grandfather was the, you know, uh, um, principal of Navy Hill School. And so 1965, that closes. And what do you have in 1971? Richmond Coliseum. And so the, these are these are concerns that we've had since the beginning. I mean, remember, um, since December 23rd, 2018, mm-hmm. we were uh, one of the issues that I think Brother Ron raised, Brother Art raised, was talking about how is this going to, with this redevelopment happens, what is going to happen to the public housing that surrounds that? Um, and just uh, and you mean the development, the Navy Hill development, right? Meaning the Navy Hill development, and that was when it was still the original ten blocks, and now that it's been expanded, and now it's immediately adjacent to Gilpin, and so uh, the reason um, 
that I kind of became more hip to this is that I had a um, October, uh, I think it was October 17th, I had uh, a community advocate share with me a FOIA request that they did uh, that literally showed that they, they, were, they were not uh, leasing uh, new units to uh, in Creighton. Shout out uh, to that Creighton community member. Yeah, that is there that we spoke of a little bit before with Omari and right. Palmer. Yeah, and so uh, we've been tracking these c connections and been very concerned about that as well. And so uh, and now it really I think came to a head as far as the connection on the October twenty eighth city uh, council work session of Navy Hill. Kim Gray pretty much said, you know, with all these evictions that are going on in Creighton and you guys are talking about this pathway to affordable housing, is it connected with Gilpin or not? And there was not a clear answer given. A lot of looking around the room to how do we kind of answer this? And so we've been really calling for um, accountability uh, and for city council to, one, look into these potential um, uh, violations of not just uh, of, of HUD laws and different things of that as well, uh, and also to um, uh, we need to really be clear and know that if a support and a vote for this coliseum would also be um, on the backs and re re repeating the history of redevelopment being paved over black community. Yeah, and, and I'm hearing from other advocates that it's really just unconscionable that you would have a plan to redevelop the downtown area in Richmond and not be intentional about including the communities that have been pushed over and crammed over into the small section over in Gilpin Court, you know, and these are descendants of families that were essentially had their, you know, homes and things taken from the highway and from the Coliseum and everything. So, you know, in this 2019, when we were talking about, you know, our 400-year history and all of that is going on, and, and that's being, you know, used to, you know, in a lot of political way, uh, realms to, you know, make people look good, um, why are we not being very intentional and saying, hey, we're going to bring this community back together, you know, and we're going to allow opportunity for everyone to live in this downtown Jackson Ward area? But they're not, because at this point, the Navy Hill Coliseum development will not take vouchers. Mm. Right. So in their in their in their written responses, either to the, the city council work session or the independent commission, two things they stated. Uh, it was talking about the impact uh, within a mile, half mile, and things like that. And they listed specifically that Gilpin Court would be potentially impacted by this decision. And now, when we're talking about impact, Omari brings up a good idea. What type of impact? Because it doesn't have to be negative impact. When you look at, at the organizers of Build out of Baltimore around the Under Armour Port Covington project, they actually got uh, community benefits agreements, community labor agreements, so that a, a portion of what was happening at the Port Covington development would actually be reinvested into these neighborhoods. So, so, so deals of this type uh, nationwide for uh, organizers have gotten wins so that the impact can be positive, but it lists that and also lists that uh, specifically will people from Gilpin, if they were to receive vouchers in this type of uh, displacement, would there be there? And they said there would be no preference given to them. So, and also let's, I wanted to quickly bring in the point that the denied grant that the RRHA put out there that was blatant mm -hmm. to include Gilpin. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the uh, Choice Neighborhood Planning Grant, um, I think the, uh, the Housing Authority had originally applied for one of those that was supposed to help out with uh, the Creighton redevelopment that, that was going to be a, a Choice Neighborhood Implementation Grant, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, they 
had submitted a choice neighborhood planning grant um, to her to uh, start the planning to see how they would possibly redevelop uh, Gilpin Court into a mixed income community and that was denied by HUD and we weren't surprised that it was denied because there was basically just a lack of uh, community involvement. Even some right. of the partners that were mentioned in the application, they had mentioned to me that they, they weren't even notified that the application was denied, that they weren't even receiving any communication with the housing authority uh, in that regard. So I'm, I'm guessing that their names were just put on there just to, you know, as like to fill in the check boxes, but there was really no uh, plan really to be intentional about including the community um, in the plan planning of the redevelopment. So right now, if people want to get involved, share their voices, what is the community asking folks to do? Um, well, we ha we definitely have to show up November twelfth uh, to City Council. Um, there at five thirty, um, there is a. Uh, supposed to be some votes on some ordinances for that Navy Hill plan. And like um, Alan was saying, there is potentially a lot of impact that would, well, if the development uh, goes through, there would definitely be impact and pressure put on Gilpin uh, and va uh, housing values and everything around there. So uh, I think it's really um, important that everyone show up November 12th to city council just to you know let everyone know that how we feel about that plan you know if if you have questions about it you know or if uh even if you like it i haven't met too many people that that say that they they like the plan you know it, but um i think it's really important that we show up on that day mm -hmm. so and as a housing organizer you're encouraging people to go out there and a lot of people are saying well what is actually november 12th for right what are people showing up for but you're saying that in one realm you can show up to speak about this housing problem and as well as just the risk that the entire navy hill project could bring to what's happening right well, now well yeah i mean i i'm concerned and um, you know my colleagues are also concerned just about how the government is assisting uh, private developers in developing housing that's not addressing the the stated needs of the city. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. we, we saw that uh, there was a report in uh, VPM News that said that they had received the information that said the one-bedroom units in the uh, Navy Hill, the proposed development, the one-bedroom units would be uh, somewhere where 1000 to $1,100. Two-bedroom units would be around $1,300 a month. And I, I believe that there were no three-bedroom units um, planned for. Right. So um, they're, I guess they're, they're not planning to have many families down there. Right. Yeah, and that's reflected in other ways as well. You look at the Davenport for the impact on schools, they put it to near to zero because they're anticipating that people with families will not be living in these developments. And also, when he was talking about uh, not winning the grant through HUD, that, that there's a nationwide pattern that's called de facto demolition, where essentially they push housing authorities that have been rejected by HUD or, or don't want to prove and have that transparency with HUD, they just pretty much increase their vacancies um, typically, hopefully by 60%, so that then they can do the de uh, demolition without the approval of that. Mm. Uh, and so uh, these were things that were raised. Uh, the concern around housing and development uh, was raised October 20th by Kim Gray, and so we're hoping for people to come out November 12th uh, and understanding that this is not separate from the concerns that were 
this was I first heard it voiced December 23rd, 2018 around this, right? So right. now people are paying attention. I think it's important to come out December 12th and uh, to ask that those questions and concerns raised by Kim Gray uh, be um, uh, answered and also make sure that the vote is continued to act till after the independent commission has finished this process. So before we get back to Amari, just let everybody know there is an independent commission that is reviewing the Navy Hill plan, and those are some of the facts that we've been reading and leading you to the NavyHillCommission.org. But this commission plan has actually not finished their process until mid-December. But right now, on November 12th, City Council has on their agenda, as of um, last week, all of the ordinance to vote on this project on November 12th. So. Alan right there was just saying that a big push is to continue this vote and not vote on it at least before the independent commission is complete with their process. Yeah, and uh, you want to talk about nationwide. One of the, the, the biggest experts on tax increment financing, David Merriman, actually has, advised, has been an advisor to the council, and he wrote his first comments and said that the Navy Hill presentation is nowhere near as detailed or specific to really be able to measure the type of impact this would have and some of the statements that they have as far as no cannibalization towards other um, uh, businesses and places in the area. He said that that's pretty much ridiculous and that there's no data that supports that and in no place has he seen that uh, happen significantly. So the, the deeper they get into this, uh, the worse and the worse that it, it gets and it's not standing up. So we don't want to see this process cut short mm -hmm. and in them trying to, you know, be, oh, well, technically the 90 days of November 12th, so we're going to vote. So we're really standing uh, to have a fair and complete process. I want to thank you all for being here today. Very quickly, how can folks follow you in your work? Leaders of the New South on uh, all social media, Leaders of the New South uh, Community Council for Housing on Facebook, Leaders of the New South on Twitter, and also uh, Instagram. I tend to put out a, a lot of information on there. Uh, yes, I'm also doing a series of podcasts called Under uh, a Difference in Thought. That's on all streaming platforms. And check out two episodes called Navy Chill and the Tax Players of NH District Corp if you want to know more. Great. And you all are inviting people out on November 12th, starting at 4.30, correct, for a rally? Absolutely. And 5.30, people will be walking in to uh, get their seat for city council meeting. That starts at 6, correct? Yes. All right. Thank you all so much for being here, and thank you for all of your work. Thanks for everybody listening. This is Chelsea and Kat signing out. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the N.